1: Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex in the City for the great American novel it truly is, and each Sex in the City movie for the cinematic effort it attempted to be. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and the options for women are witch or sexy cat. Joining me is recently awakened from a Mexicoma, Dolly Alderton.
2: Hi! Question. Mm -hmm. Did you choose Mexicoma because, you know, how hungover I am? (laughs) I've got the kind of hangover where I know the minute we finish the record I'm going to order a singular slice of cheesecake on delivery and pay a 6 pound small item I'm charge so- to have it and then I will eat it in bed.
1: I just thank you for thank you for dragging up the um Moxie to come on this recording tonight. It's Easter Sunday. <laughs> you got drunk off your arse last night and here we are to talk about a movie that is okay
2: <laughs> it is it really is just okay isn't it it's it's been this very sobering moment for caroline and i because we watched the film together remotely and we teed it up at the same time to watch it and we were super excited
1: and yeah we had the bottle we had bottles of fizz out and everything we both had like our snacks and ready and like we were really we were determined to make it as much of an event as we could despite not being in the same room and it was a lot of us messaging each other being like it's quite dull for a long time it doesn't get going until about 45 minutes in you know it's weird it's like
2: the first time i've watched it with properly critical eyes and i was like we just kept texting, being like, "Oh, maybe it's not
1: that good of film," because I remember it being so good. I think the thing about these movies is that they really cre- they kind of created a genre of female event cinema. I think now I haven't done a lot of research on this, so I don't know the dates for things of when certain things came out. But my this this came out in two thousand and eight, and I have a very very clear memory. I was still living in Cork at the time. I was eighteen. Um, There was like literally chalk A boards out in front of restaurants that were like within a half a mile of the cinema saying like, oh, sex in the city, sort of pre-theater menu, get your bottle of Prosecco here. There was like, everybody was cashing in. Like, and, you know, I remember going with my girlfriends to the movie and like, I remember so clearly because I was sitting on the end of four of my pals and then there was another, the whole cinema was packed and then I had a woman to the right of me who I didn't know. And I remember us literally gasping together. And at one point, both of us had such an emotional reaction that I reached out and grabbed her hand, like this total stranger. And then we had like a giggle Aww. at the end. It was so yeah. lovely. But then I think what happened after that was... The Sex and City movie sort of proved a concept, which is that women go in packs to things. And it, yes. it continued to be a thing. So that I think... I think without the Sex and City movie, we wouldn't have had a Bridesmaids, we wouldn't have had a Magic Mike, we wouldn't have had mm. all these things where basically they proved once again that like women do things in groups in a way that couples don't do, in the way that groups of men yes. don't do, in a way that no other groups do apart from, you know, children's birthday parties.
2: Totally, you're you're so, so right and... I do remember that as well. I was a student at Exeter and I remember all my all my girlfriends, we all went. And I remember that feeling of it was just shoulder to shoulder, packed cinema, or like a huge room of women. And I remember exactly the moments when everyone cried and gasped. I remember the two biggest laughs of the film. One was obviously when Charlotte shat herself mm-hmm. in Mexico. And the other is when Charlotte uh, tells Big to go away. When Big, after he jilts Carrie yeah. and he tries to approach her and Charlotte looks at and wags her finger and says, no! And then she no. marches in her fishtail dress with this furious look on her face and she has this little waddle.
1: And I remember the whole cinema pissing themselves. Oh, same, same. And I even remember for the, the second much more maligned film, like, which obviously nobody in their right mind actually likes. And has, and is so bad to the point that it has a kind of a so bad it's good sort of showgirls thing about it. But yeah. when, I, when I was in the cinema for that movie a few years later, people were pissing themselves. People, like, loved it in the cinema. Mm. I just mm. think that there's, I don't know, it almost needs to be judged to a different standard because it's not really about, you know, filmmaking so much as it is about a, being a group experience in the same way that, like, Mamma Mia is, you know?
2: Yeah, and I also think as well. I just don't think generally TV characters and TV relationships tra- translate very well Yeah. Just to the silver
1: screen. The silver screen.
2: Here we are. Who knew that this would be the flavor of my hangover this evening? To <laughs> start talking like this. Um, but I don't think it does translate well to the silver, to the silver
1: screen. screen.
2: <laughs> um because I just think the narrative rules of episodic television and the world of episodic television and the pacing of episodic television and also just like the narrative square footage, like so much gets lost in this incredibly long film. So many characters, like lead characters, just aren't paid attention to and their Mm. stories aren't really respected because there's just not enough time because these characters are used to existing over the course of however long 10 hours mm. and and getting to kind of unwind their stories very slowly so people so characters like Charlotte and Miranda yes throughout the seasons their stories probably were much lower in the mix and you probably would only get one or two hits of their story per episode but they were it was every episode that they were tracked so it meant that these stories could still leave an impact on on the legacy of the show in a way that I just don't
1: think you get in the film. It's basically just the Carrie story really in both films. I agree. And it's, um, and I, I, I totally like sympathize and understand because if I were tasked with the, even, even if I had created this, you know, great show spanning six seasons, the idea of like having to truncate all these stories and put them into a 90 minute film, it's an impossible task. It's like, it's basically a, a task that you're always going to fail at for all the reasons that you just said, there just isn't the time for the groundwork, you know, and but what what makes it so annoying is that it makes the same by having to serve the main character who is Carrie Bradshaw, it makes this really weird world where all the characters, their lives seem to kind of revolve around Carrie and mm. they drop everything yes. for her and it's all about her life and stuff. That, that that like clangs really falsely and feels really weird. Like something that we both pointed out when we were watching it was like, you know, they, they drop everything and they go to Mexico um for Carrie's jilting, which is obviously a huge deal. But then, you know, Miranda, Miranda's husband, Steve cheating on her and her marriage ending doesn't get the same level mm. of attention or mm, care. No. And yeah. even though that was always a kind of an issue in the, TV show and always the thing that the fans really didn't like about the TV show but always tolerated became writ large in the movie.
2: Yeah and actually a part of me wonders whether the best way to celebrate something a TV show like this that everyone adores and people want to return to those characters and people want to have a shared group experience where they celebrate this piece of culture that has affected them so deeply. I wonder if it's not updating it with cinematic version I wonder if it is doing what the Friends lot are doing which is like doing a big studio show or I wonder if we just think of those films rather than films as just being like kind of like the Christmas party <laughs> like the yes. end of the end of you know yeah the end of season party both of those films rather than like a piece of cinema that completely chimes with the with the authenticity and the soul of what the tv show was
1: Christmas party is such a good word for it right because and, and and honestly when we were tuning in to record this podcast this evening um that's how we feel right about even this like this thing we've been doing for eight weeks or whatever or seven weeks um is like oh let's let's ha- let's just have fun with it let's just keep it loose let's not get too serious or whatever um and the Christmas party and uh, metaphor goes even further because it's like Everyone in these movies—they're too dressed up. They're—they're <laughs> they're acting like slightly drunk versions of themselves. You know, everything's a little yeah. bit bigger. Everything's a bit louder. Everything's brighter. The music is louder. The music is worse. <laughs> and, yeah, music's
2: terrible. Yeah,
1: it's like they—they they all if if the if the TV show was this like office job they were going to every day then the movies are the rented function room in a weird hotel near the airport that everyone goes to in their like coast mini dress and they they do get drunk and they do have fun but ultimately do they really want to be there
2: yeah and ultimately is it a reflection of what the day to day was no no and i yeah and there's also something really interesting to examine with the film of like what what of the what were they trying to distill that was magic about the TV show, and then process to make more commercial for a mass mm. cinema audience? So I think this, the question of that ties in with the main theme of the film, which I just still cannot get a purchase on, mm. which is something to do with labels and love. It's in the music. It's in the opening VO it's peppered throughout the film about, you know, her wedding dress not having a label when someone fall, when she's talking about, I think, Louise falling in love, her assistant falling in love. She was like, love is the best label. And there's this big, like, there's this big metaphor that's, that's meant to be joining fashion and love together. And normally I think that the themes and the metaphors and the, like recurring little motifs and jokes that all link together to tell a story um, kind of separate from the plot. Normally, I think they, it can be a bit on the nose. I can always make sense of it mm. episode per, mm. by episode. I still can't get, I don't know what they were trying to get at with that theme of the film. Yeah. And it, I think it was you who said, it's obviously just them going, right, what do people love the most about Sex in the City? Fashion and relationships.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, it, it's. I again, it's so interesting when people misunderstand what what they have and why people love it. I think about oh. this the most when I think about Madonna, where it's like it's like I always want to say to Madonna, my friend, um, <laughs> it's like Madonna, you think people love you because you're um, sexy and thin and outrageous. It's like, no, people loved you because you were sweaty and odd. <laughs> like, yeah, because you, you were weird yeah.
2: and transgressive. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, And you really like... And, and the thing that we loved about Madonna, when you watch like the Truth, or, the Truth or Dare documentary, it's like you can see behind the glamour, there's beads of sweat rolling off that Italian-American girl. And you can see yeah. the little girl who's just working her fucking ass off. And that was what was compelling about her. Like this sort of like... This thing she's created in the last sort of fifteen years of her career, it's like oh, I just want to say, like, no, that's not what we liked, you yeah, know. Yeah, and
2: also that looks very stressful to keep up.
1: Yes, <laughs> and it's the same thing with this, um, with this, you know, movie and and how the creators have interpreted the fans' love. It's like, oh, you love the clothes and you love the love and you love Mister Big. It's that's, like, no, oh, we like those things. We love the girls. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. If you were
2: to now interpret, if you were tasked and brought in as a consultant on on that project to move it from tv to film and someone said to you what do you think are the things that people tune in for for that show what are the like five key ingredients that we've got to take from that tv show and put in any franchise product of sex in the city what
1: what would you say the thing is, what I would genuinely say from the from the bottom of my huge fan heart is that the thing that people love about this show is the thing that I actually outlined in the last episode, which is they take real women's problems, deal with them in a real way, but they run them through the most glamorous filter you could imagine yeah. in a way that feels yeah. like it's simultaneously working through an issue with better dialogue, better jokes and better friends than any of us could hope to have. And then yeah. they dress them in all this beautiful Fabergé, you know, romantic situations, lovely dresses, beautiful bodies, you know? Mm. And th- mm. I think that's what people love. And they love um, the idea of like friendship and triumphing all and all this stuff. And the idea of having in your late 30s, early 40s going onwards, the idea of your best friends being the most important people in your life, I think is really arresting to people still. I don't think people care about big as much as the show creators think they do or care about fashion as much, you know? I completely agree. I think, and I also think there just aren't enough
2: scenes of the girls hashing stuff out and processing things together, which is, as you said, like, that's the real magic of it. There's no, now that I think about it, there's like no scene in the coffee shop. Is there, oh no, there's one scene, I think, in the coffee shop with the girls. There's no... And you know the other thing that I think the the film is missing, and I, I hate saying it, but I because I do think that long term love is really interesting and in how you, how you sustain love and how you balance it with a you know a family and a career, all that stuff I think is really interesting. But I think you do miss burgeoning romance. Yeah. I found myself rewatching it this time and thinking. Why isn't Miranda, why didn't they give Miranda a single mother dating storyline? Or why didn't Carrie try dating apps for the first time? Or it just feels like a missed beat.
1: Yeah. But even though I completely understand why they wouldn't explore those beats, because rightly they would be like, well, realistically, no one is going to fall in love with a new guy at this point. Right? Yeah. So I don't know. So we've decided to talk about the movie uh, through each character beats. So we're going to start with Carrie and then we're going to move on to the other girls. And uh, obviously that's handy because that's how the movie starts. It's Carrie giving us that montage at the beginning. And the montage is sort of told by a very crap song from Fergie. (laughs) I don't understand why (laughs) Fergie is the main sort of soundtrack star of this movie when Jennifer Hudson is literally right there. (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah it's mad that
2: opening song
1: I don't get it particularly when you think of like how often Sex and the City um relied on like jazz singing and like um like Otis Redding and all that kind of stuff and like Jennifer Hudson has this huge voice beautiful yeah and she's at the peak of her fame it's 2008 it's like why wouldn't you have her do like a newer version of like an Ella Fitzgerald song, or doing. God, that's such a good. Or like Manhattan, or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so right. yeah Dina Washington, yeah, I mean, she, or something, you know? She does
2: the um, closing song, and the lyrics of it have always really annoyed me. What is it again? I'm dressed up in love. It's oh, cool it's in the summer, so warm shy. in the winter. <laughs> Oh, I
1: know. The minute you said that, I was just like, oh, I actually felt like my hair got all weird, like a cat. I'm just like, oh. I can't bear that it's not as good as I remember. And I think
2: the closing message is not this, but it's something like, as that song plays, and in the end, love is the best dress that you can wear.
0: Yeah!
1: It's like, there's some like, they keep referring back to this like theme or metaphor or whatever about love and labels and fashion and what we, you know, oh, is it supposed to be about like, oh, the, the labels that Big and Carrie were putting on each other as husband and wife. And is that what wasn't working in expectations? But they just kind of, they bump off these things, but they never mm-hmm. actually get into any of them. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, and do you know what? I was talking to Monica Heisey the other day about
2: notes mm-hmm about the note process when you're writing TV, about how many notes you get how many people read. it. Monica is a TV writer. Mm. And I said something that I do find strange now that I'm in that process is when you know how many layers of notes that you get mm. on scripts, how dodgy stuff gets made. And Monica said either too many notes are given by yeah. too many people or everyone's scared of the creator or the kudos and the power of the creator means they feel like no one has to give them notes. And I think with this film, it's definitely the latter. What, Michael Patrick King not getting enough notes? Just that they were relying on the capital of that franchise.
1: Yeah, which is is exactly what that opening montage is relying on, right? But But also, like you know wisely so because it totally gets me every time when we when they we do I have, love that opening montage it was like we get all of Carrie's books that she's written in the years since and she sort of re- revisits everybody and like i always like well up cuz i'm like oh my friends my friends are back you know it's so it really gets me but like the thing that you and i both got into cuz you and i are such so mad for freeze framing on any pictures of text <laughs> was Carrie's books that she's written in the years since Sex and the City the book came out and I would love to know Oh yeah one of them is called Manhattan <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know what do you think her writing career has been like since we last left her cuz clearly she's been successful would we read them would we buy them where would we buy so, them and how are they marketed
2: We freeze-framed for the first time when we were watching it together. I freeze-framed on those chapters Mm -hmm. when it said, when she does a little intro for each character with like Mm -hmm. a catch-up of where they, you know, what we've seen them go through in the series and where they are now. Like it flips to a page as a graphic where it flips to a page. And when I paused, I saw that there were whole chapter headings that were about her friend's stories that were novelized yeah. versions of her friend's stories. so you could see that when she went paused on Miranda there was a whole chapter about the fact that Miranda had moved to Brooklyn mm-hmm. for love so I think I always thought that those books were like generalized um you know meandering thoughts and observations on love with like Maybe she interviews a few like psychologists and loveologists, and do you know what I mean, like the the kind of books I avoid, but was obsessed with when I was about fourteen. The
1: kind of books I avoid, but nonetheless get sent to me all the time, which are like yes. these. Um, and this is this is gonna sound cruel, but nonetheless, I think we all know, you know, this this is quite a lazy sort of book that exists, where it's like a journalist has a feature. Let's say the feature is you know, why monogamous couples are choosing to buy frogs? And then, (laughs) and then someone will see it and be like, there's a book in that and they write the book and it's like 20,000 words, their own thoughts and jokes. Yeah. 20,000 words, erroneous studies vaguely linked to the thing where it's like, well, 22% of frog owning couples actually fuck more. (laughs) And then the remaining is just like rando people that they interviewed with, like, sort of quotes chucked yeah. and in there,
2: and they'll add they'll add a bit of color into it where it's like, I have no idea what to expect when I meet Frog Love Ologist Darren one day in Broccoli for a coffee. But the man who walks in, and that's like the most detail and color that you get. I know. I don't think that it's these. I don't. I used to think yeah. that's what she was writing. I don't think she's writing that. And I would never have bought those books past the age of about twenty. But if what she's writing is basically a memoir, a serialized memoir that she keeps updating about her marriage and her friends' relationships, one hundred percent I would be obsessed with those books.
1: Totally. I could I can completely see it. I it made me actually so fascinated this time around when you see like chapter headings that are like, oh, Charlotte's big something or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, so she's like fictionalising her friends' lives and like, that's cool. I did think like, that does feel like a missing thing. Like a serialised, I would just love to read about a group of women. Yeah, if there's like a a version of Nora Ephron's books, but like Nora Ephron's got these like three girlfriends that we all know about, you know? Yes, yeah. Would have been hot so um, I would have loved Manhattan brief in brief <laughs> swallowed up Manhattan I would have been mean, choking for Manhattan and uh they they really spend a lot of this opening montage as well you've got Carrie walking through New York she's got that white dress with a big gold flower and it's like emphasis is on like foursomes of women right and like it happens quite a lot in the movie where it sex and city kind of reckons with the legacy it itself has created which yes it definitely it thinks it's invented groups of four women <laughs> <laughs> which i think is hilarious
2: <laughs> you're right there is a lot of examination of that and there's a lot even with them um, that really uncomfortable relationship with carrie with her personal assistant there's definitely something about Her with the audience nostalgically looking back on what it was to be in your early 30s and looking for love when you arrive in New York through that character. It's like an invitation for us to reflect on how far Carrie has come and probably like how far we as audience members have come.
1: And it would be so good if there was any about it we cared about at all, right? (laughs) Like, I I kind of touched on this, you know, we talked about a little bit in uh, season six, part one episode, but like this idea of like creating this character for Jennifer Hudson and really like her character doesn't affect any of the stakes of the plot. She doesn't intersect with any of the other characters. Really, like, I would be surprised if she met any of the other three. And it's just like... Okay, so she's a girl who she's moved to New York and she lives with all these other girls in a a flat somewhere. And she, like the biggest character trait about her is that she wants to fall in love and she likes handbags. And (laughs) she rents handbags. Mm -hmm. And then, but like, even if her whole thing was like, oh, she's supposed to connect us to this sort of part of, Manhattan that Carrie's no longer in, which is, you know, being single, being in your twenties or thirties, however old she is. Um, we barely see it. And then it's like, oh, she's in love with her boyfriend from St. Louis who we've never met and don't care about. And it's just like it's it's very like it's very frustrating, you know? Yeah. And it does yeah. feel like tokenism because like because she doesn't impact the plot, because there's nothing that intersects with anything else, you know? It's just this... No,
2: and it's so patronising as well, I find. Just... That's
1: exactly what it is, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. The way that Carrie interacts with her
1: and the way that... I don't love that plot. And there's also this funny thing going on here. And it goes back to this love and labels thing. Where um, I really noticed it this time around. Where there's so much in this movie about acts of love being communicated through acts of money. Where it's like, so obviously it's the big and carry stuff. It's the, you know, them getting this outrageous, beautiful penthouse apartment that she can no way afford, but, like, he just pays for. And then he buys her the new closet, builds her the new closet. There's all that stuff. But then there's the stuff of, like, her buying Louise these outrageously expensive handbags and, um, you know, the jewellery auction, Smith and Samantha, like, driving Mm. up the price of this crazy Mm. ring and like and these are all like framed the greatest acts of romance that happen in this film are all centered around money and I find after a while once you notice it it gets very yeah. off putting Cynthia Nixon I remember a few
2: years ago I think it was when she was running um, she was asked... It's so unfair that the responsibility of this should fall on Cynthia Nixon's shoulders. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but um, someone, a journalist, asked her about that film and how she felt about the first film. And she said the only thing that really depressed her about it is that is that the way that big wins carry back is, is by building her a big closet.
1: Oh. Well, no, first two he wins are back by typing out emails. Or what Caroline I think he probably this. does. I just think it's so shite. Um like he <laughs> he like he types out all the emails from the book what she liked. Um but personally I think he just copied and pasted them off brainyquote.com. I think he was on brainyquote.com. I think he was, <laughs> think he was. and like and and that really is the only place where um Louise's Plot line intersects with the major plot of the film which is that she set up a spam folder <laughs> it's so <laughs> mental it's so mental and also very prescient you know the dawn of the you know a couple of years before the um, Hillary Clinton run that it all comes down to her emails you know <laughs> oh, <laughs> <for> God's sake <laughs> <laughs> I find it so depressing <laughs> i just am
2: desperate for you to write the dissertation of that plot in the wake of the clinton email scandal <laughs> oh my god how do you feel in that early stage of the film mm. how do you feel about buying the flat and the proposal and how the how the proposal and wedding comes about
1: I actually quite like all that stuff. I I, do. I think it's like fit and sexy. that They don't yet live together.
2: Yeah, I think it's very French.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that at this point they've been together for, you know, for years now. and are very comfortable in the relationship and he still has his big granite kitchen and she still has her lovely little flat, you know, and I do think all those shitty flats they see together, Big wouldn't go see those flats. No. Absolutely not. For for one. Um, and then I, I actually really like the whole thing of like they go into that ridiculous ballroom flash. <laughs> I just like I think
2: it's so mental. Um that's I it. don't think it's mental. I think it's
1: I think it's very achievable. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like Versailles or something, that flash. Yeah. Huge. That's yeah.
2: what we should all be aiming for.
1: Ballroom ceilings, fountain, and all this stuff and um you know he just says oh i got it i got it and then he buys it and then and then she sort of comes independently to the notion you know that you know look i would have no rights in this i you know we would build this life together and then you could decide to leave me and you would have everything and we need to talk Mm -hmm. about this logistically i need to be smart about this and then they come to this very you know sensible arrangement about their their wedding and i actually quite like it how do you feel about it
2: One thing I will say, she doesn't really come to it independently. She comes to it because a woman in a loo at the auction says to her, (laughs) She was a smart girl until she fell in love. And last time I had my heart broken, my friend India voice noted me every
1: day She was a smart girl until she fell in love. It's so important for the healing process. (laughs) It is the most extra bit part ever. It's bordering on camp. It's so funny to me, and the way the way the way like, a woman's face is just blazed into my mind. Me too. She's me like too. washing her hands, and she's like grabbing the paper towels, and she's, like, you know, it's really sad because I knew her.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous.
1: And they're like, really. <laughs>
2: Um, But but no, how I feel about the proposal is exactly how you feel about the proposal. I think it's really sexy. I think it's very believable that Big would organically come to a point in his life where he just wants to be married to her. And that he kind of is thinking it all in real time. um, And it just took him that long to realise that that's probably the thing that makes most sense and will make them feel most secure as a couple. I do think that there's a really interesting thing that is like that slightly gets lost in the film because there's so much there's so little room for plots mm. and statements to breathe but mm. I think there is something interesting in the fact that Carrie has a wedding planned of what does what does Anthony say a small wedding of 76
0: 75 oh, yeah.
2: 75, Which is yeah. also not a small wedding. Like, that's a big wedding. And she, but, you know, she was going to wear a little suit and it was going to be in City Hall. And then something about the wedding industry and heterosexuality mm. and the traditions of heterosexuality means that she just loses her fucking mind. She loses all sense of who she is, what makes her happy, what makes him happy, who they are as a couple... And she gets, gets completely eaten up by this idea of the huge wedding. And it is an interesting comment because I feel like I have known so many women who mm. for years and years and years, they just be sitting outside in a pub garden, smoking a fag, and they'd say, do you know what? When I get married, I just want to wear a jumpsuit. Yeah. And I, just, I don't want it to be a wedding. I want it to just be a big party. Oh, excuse for a party. It's just a, an excuse for a party. It's you know what gonna be about Do you know us. what, lads? It's an excuse for a party. It's
1: like, yeah. as if.
2: The one, the one that annoys me the most is when they go, we want it to be like a festival. It's not going to be a wedding. It's, not, it's going to be like a festival.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Go fuck yourself. It is not going to be. Don't do, sell it to me. It's a festival. Do you know what? I'm going to turn up ready for a festival and it ain't going to be a festival.
1: I think this is a great cultural uh, difference between you and I because there is... Not one Irish woman I know. Actually, I know one Irish woman. She's having a, a wedding in a few months' time and, you know, 10 people are coming and she likes it that way. Um, but the rest of them, they, you will never catch them saying that. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. It, they're huge. Like, I've never gone to an Irish wedding that was less than 300 people. Everyone has oh to bring money God. in an envelope. It's like, there's often several dresses, you know, like, it's a huge deal. It's that sort of, like, slightly rural thing that's, like, still kind of kept on. It's a huge thing of, like, the, I, I you, you have to give someone, at the very least, 100 euros in an envelope if you're going to their wedding. Like yeah it's 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 very very interesting to me so it's it was quite a culture shock when I came here and I started talking to like the London bride and she started yeah. talking and like the first time I went to a wedding that was you know a room in a pub with sort of 70 80 people at it I was I, I literally in my head thought like oh they must be poor
0: <laughs> like <laughs>
1: Like there must be some serious cash flow issues, kind of thing. And now the longer I get into it, the more I'm like, oh, this is this is a choice for people. I didn't realize it was a choice you could make.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do find it. I I don't. I have to say, when I go to big weddings, and I would say a big wedding is anything over seventy, and it's you know, food all day, like you know, formal seat, everyone's sitting down and lots of free wine, and, you know, I love those weddings, but I I do think, like, where has the money come from for this? I don't understand how many people yeah. can afford to do this, but I suppose, you know, people from very modest backgrounds suddenly have these weddings, and I am just, like, can't work out the maths of it. But I do wonder if it's... I think there are just lots of families that this is such an important part of their idea of family future yeah. when you have a daughter and so much of what womanhood is you know it's one of the the rites of passage womanhood that they obviously just like squirrel it away yeah like that that must be what happens and actually what's nice is like people who don't have parents with any money or who in their when they get married in their 30s or 40s sometimes don't have parents that around that they that is when you're most likely to have a woman actually see the whole. I'm gonna just wear a jumpsuit. It's gonna be a party thing through, mm-hmm. but it's just it's fascinating. I have to say as well, I do love a big wedding, and if that's what you want, like more power to you, enjoy it. I do just think it is funny how many women seem to have such a different idea of what they want to do, and then they start talking to people or reading wedding magazines, and then they have this enormous day. And yeah. a lot of the time i know a lot of women who've really hated it
1: yeah yeah i exactly i i have a lot of thoughts on this every there's there's no woman alive who doesn't have a huge amount of thoughts that could fill a fucking phone book about weddings um but the abiding thought in my head is i remember the night before my sister's wedding i was 19 she was 29 and um she was getting married in rome and my dad said to me Because I think he was, like, paranoid. I was just... Because I was the only bridesmaid that I was going to get a bit pissed and make a fool of myself. And he was like... (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Me? Um, And he said to me the night before the wedding, he was like, you know, Caroline, you have to remember, tomorrow isn't about you. And I was like, Dad, I know. And he was like, and tomorrow isn't about Jill. And I was like, (laughs) oh. And then he he leaned in and he said, tomorrow is about showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love him so much. I love him so much. And he was like, tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow is the day where biz. everyone forms their ideas about our family, what we do, what we're like, yeah. who we are. Yeah. So like yeah. tits and teeth, my love kind of
2: thing. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so good. <laughs> it was so good. That's funny. what it is. Yeah. That is what it is.
1: Yeah, it's everyone's family roadshow. Do you know what I mean? It's like a vaudevillian act where everyone has these very sort of um, prescribed roles of how they should be behaving. And, you know, everyone's assembled there to see how well they do it. And what's really interesting about the wedding in this movie is that it also serves as a metaphor for the film itself, which is, it's this thing that the more money that goes into it, the more they have to show, you know? yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know, I'm sure when they cooked up the idea for this movie, they're like, oh, it'll almost be like an art house movie. It'll be like a classic (laughs) rom com. It'll be this paired backstory where, do you know what? We just want to see where the characters are. We want to see how they feel about the naughties. You know, it's like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How's Brooklyn doing? Um, and then, you know, the more the more budget they pitched for and the more budget they got and the more labels they got, the bigger it got and the more unwieldy it totally. became. And totally. And that's what's happening in this movie <laughs> and in the wedding. It's such an interesting parallel.
2: <laughs> and I'm also, I've got to say, I'm on big side for this. He shouldn't have jilted her. Mm-mm. But that scene where... He says this wedding is becoming a circus. You sent me, when we were watching that simultaneously, you sent me an outraged message that said, this wedding has not been planned in the same spirit in which it was promised. (laughs) And I agree. They agreed for a certain type of ceremony and a certain type of wedding.
1: And Carrie completely ignored that. And I think that would really bum me out. Yeah, yeah, because it also, I don't blame people, it's what, what's so interesting is that the wedding industrial complex eats women, like, it it indoctrinates us from an extremely early age, we're like, having our fucking toilet paper veils on, getting married to the dog or whatever, and we have this this sort of, like, idea that, you know, weddings are our day to be a princess, and that is fine. And the wedding industrial complex does not eat men in the same way. And so it's very yeah. understandable how a man, any man, not just big, would look at his wife and be like, this this materialistic, shallow, cares very deeply about what people we barely even like thinks about her person. Is she really the woman I want to marry? yeah and uh and you know what happens here is yeah he he's not convinced in the right amount of time that it is the woman he wants to marry you know it's it must be it must be hard for men to see this monster swallow up the woman he loves and then still go through with yoking her to him for the rest of his life, yeah, particularly when
2: like you don't see it with Carrie, but particularly when you see women like. Making themselves miserable by going on fucking horrible crash diets.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: getting themselves into debt, getting themselves into an absolute tizzy, trying to keep everyone happy, normally trying to keep the people happy who have paid for the whole thing, who they feel yeah. so indebted to. I do have sympathy, as you said, as you said, that like this is something that just swallows up women. Yeah. In a way that it doesn't swallow up men. All that being said, I believe that tension. And I think that that's a really, like, smart little point of tension in their story that is very believable. (sighs) I don't, I don't buy his jilting. Do you not? I don't. I don't. What Miranda says one thing at the at the rehearsal dinner, and then he needs to see her face when she comes out of the car. I just don't. I don't buy it. I don't buy it.
1: Do you? No, I don't buy it at all. No. And like it's what I do buy is the whole and I wish they kind of had more time to investigate it is the thing of this being bigs third marriage of like he had he had this big wedding to Natasha. Presumably he had a big wedding to his first wife as well. And that is embarrassing and they do talk about that. But um yeah, I I I I I don't know. There's it's almost like there's a scene missing or like a fight or a something missing mm. that would make his jilting more believable. But like ultimately, is there anything more drama or more soap opera or more titillating than a woman in a wedding dress with no one to get married to? It's just yes. Oh, it's Taylor's oldest time. It just makes my fucking nipples hard. It's so much good I know. story. <laughs> I know and the thing is they just lean into it
2: so hard even that image that I remember being packed on on location and and seeing in heat when everyone was so desperate to know what was going to happen yeah um in the movie that image of her getting out of the car and hitting him over the head with her flowers and the flowers going flying and as that As that happens, they literally, it's like it switches into a totally different film momentarily where there's this huge action film score that plays underneath.
1: Yes, of him being like stuck in traffic with his driver and wanting to turn the car around and all this shit. And the music
2: of it suddenly makes you just feel, it just like plunges you in a totally different, um, in a totally different story and it suddenly, I have to say, I do think it's like a little bit flabby up until that point. The minute that that happens the wedding and the jilting and the argument Mm. on fifth avenue it does feel like now we're hitting the ground running with story like that scene where they're all sitting in charlotte's apartment in silence Mm. and carrie's drinking vodka
1: Mm.
2: post jilting is so good i think it's so raw
1: yeah yeah it's and that that perfect thing of like you you experience it so seldomly with, in your life, but when you do, it's they're the days you remember forever when something so bad has happened and so unexpected that no one knows what to say. Mm. And it's like, and it's, they actually capture the atmosphere of that really well of like it almost feels like the air stands still like there's no mm. there's no molecules moving in the room <laughs> you know it's mm. it's oh it's so awful and you really feel it. you're right that is when the movie really gets going and up until that point it feels like a victory lap and touching base with people. There's one there's one bit I would like to talk about which is the colouring scene. Oh yeah yeah. It's such a clanger for me
2: it's a huge clanger for me as well i hate it because i hate it i
1: might i might be getting confused with the chronology for a minute but i think what it is is that like we have that miranda storyline right with the her and steve haven't had sex in six months and when they do finally have sex after that really tense meal in that italian restaurant um you know they're both wearing their t-shirts which is obviously the most depressing thing in the world And she says, you know, to get it over with. And then they all talk about it at brunch the next day. And she really, like, lays her heart flat out there. And she's like, you know, we we haven't had sex in six months. And, like, Samantha says, oh, honey. And they're they're, they're using colouring as a metaphor because Lily's there and whatever. And, uh, oh, I colour whenever I can. I can't colour enough. And you're like, fine, okay. Um... (laughs) And then Charlotte, just like as the only other married woman in the room, just says, Oh, you know, well we have sex three, four times a week with her little sort of placid doe face. And I'm just like <laughs> I'm so furious when that happens. I'm so
2: sick of her at that point when she says that.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm so like, just absolutely sick of her. Like what so and like maybe we should get to this later in the episode or maybe talk about it I don't know but um, the idea that like because Charlotte and Miranda are both married that they somehow exist on equal footing when Miranda's working all the hours God sends and her husband owns a bar and you know that, and they're trying to fit in a sex life around that and also he's got an ill mother and you know they have Brady and then there's Charlotte with fuck all to do but
2: Brush her daughter's hair. Also, lest we forget that Miranda at this point is still living in the shanty town of Brooklyn. <laughs> She's living in the favela that is Brooklyn, <laughs> in the Brooklyn brown zone.
1: <laughs> her huge back garden with her paddling pool and everything, and like, the idea, it really annoys me that like, like Charlotte does fuck all except you know brush Lily's hair and put on lingerie in her Park Avenue apartment. And, like, the fact that they live in such different realities and yet, like, Charlotte's like, oh, you know, guess I just fancy my husband more than you fancy yours. Bye. Like, it's like, oh, it really annoys me, the elephant in that room. I know. It fucks me off. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Then what fucks me off
2: even more is when Carrie refuses to talk about sex with Big and then says, what I will say is... When we do have sex, he rarely stays inside the lines.
1: I remember. Which Caroline and I have decided means rimming. Because <laughs> it's like, the way she looks up and does her Sarah Jessica Parker eyebrow acting, where she's like, when big colours, he rarely stays inside the rhymes. It's like, is he,
2: like, what does that mean, babe? Is he licking your arsehole? Like, what's he? I think it's something to do with also his butt play. It's got to be. <laughs> The line she's talking about is one's perineum,
1: (laughs) because otherwise it makes no sense at all. No, but like, oh, and then and then she goes home and she's like, Jan, (laughs) and then Big is just you know waiting on the balcony, ready to shag her. It's like they don't they don't know what to do with those two characters when they're happy and in love. It's it's that's exactly what it is. They do not
2: know how to keep it interesting. I also think what, going back to that post-wedding scene, something else that I think they really nail is that thing post-crisis in a group of friends where something awful has happened to one of your friends where life just stands still for about two weeks. And it almost feels like Christmas or something. It feels like Mm. a weird, and it's this like cocoon space to just hold that person, which it's kind of like even though it's so it's such animal pain like the first two weeks after in grief it does give you this like completely false sense of comfort and safety when you have everyone dropping everything to be with you everyone helping to sort out the practicalities of like you know with a death it would be like arranging a funeral with this it's miranda and samantha um getting all her stuff moved back mm. into her apartment and getting, making sure that she's going to be able to buy her apartment back. And actually where the real processing begins is that really lonely moment when Carrie comes back from the honeymoon and it's mm. raining and you just see her standing at the top of her stairs wearing such a beautiful scarf, like a big red scarf. Yeah. And she's got her hair in a perfect bun. And that is a really poignant moment for me of the, everyone's lives has to
1: resume her life yeah. now has to resume. I do I do love those Mexico scenes so much. I do. And the thing of like, and it really, it's so funny because it's so easy to like, be really cynical about the huge swathes of this movie. And then unexpectedly, you'll just get like a hit of feelings off of some bits. And like the bit where she, she comes through, she goes straight into bed and then she sleeps for basically two days and them kind of periodically checking on her like there's something very real and very well observed about those things. It's just that sort of the dreamlike space immediately after tragedy where you're, mm. it's like your brain can't process what you're going through and it just it wipes you out and the sort of depression napping that happens and losing all sense of time. Mm. And then I think mm. like when, when Samantha comes in the end and just feeds her breakfast, it I think it wrecks oh. everyone. It wrecks me. And there's music
2: that's playing, The scoring of it's so beautiful. And she does the wink at her. She literally spoon feeds her porridge and then winks at her. Samantha has this like really hot matriarch energy in this film. Yeah. And she's just like keeping shit together. And she's taking care of business with all the girls. Even in that moment at the rehearsal dinner where she tells Miranda that Steve just has turned up. Yeah. Looking a little bit like a hobo.
1: Oh my I don't god! Mm-hmm. They don't my, want to bother you guys! I, I, <laughs> he looks it's so it's like all the hatred that the stylists had for Cynthia Nixon is transferred on to poor old David Eigenberg. It's like they're drawing stink lines around him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, but yeah, when he turns up, Samantha goes and tells Miranda, and then everyone leaves leaves Miranda, and Samantha just it sees like just small moments of like big matriarchal energy where she yeah. just says to her are you okay and then she closes the door. And I think it's because Samantha's not fucking anyone. It's the first time we've ever seen her not in the throes of some of a new love affair. Yeah. So they have to give her this like fierce energy in another way and the way that they do it is she's um, she's just like the the um, she's just like the hero in this in this film. She takes on a totally new quality.
1: I totally agree with you. And because her her storyline in LA happens away from the action of the of the rest of the girls or whatever, people I like go to her with things. Yeah. In a different way. The and the way that Miranda says to her, like, you know, I said something to Big before the wedding and Samantha's like, I wouldn't do it now. You know, it's like it's very yeah. sexy. Like there's yeah, I I think she's at her best in this. I just wish there was more of her once again, and like I, you know, we'll we'll get to it when we get to her section. But I, I really hate where her storyline goes ultimately with the sort of the weight, yeah, the, the quote unquote weight gain. Um, and I also love that line. It's, I think it's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, where she says to Carrie, "Oh, honey, you made a little joke. Good for you." <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love that whole sequence, actually. I love when they go down for their first dinner in the hotel and there's the mariachi band. And Charlotte is being very not loving the sesh because she's refusing to eat and she's refusing to drink and she's just going to Pilates and spa appointments. Um, But the bit of that scene that I think is so good, and actually I wonder if it's like really the question that drives the whole film is when Carrie says... He was a bad... He's a bad guy. He always was. And I think there is something really interesting in the question of what happens when you marry the bad guy because there is a parallel universe when I think of, you know, one or two men that Hmm. I have loved and I think what would have happened if if they had committed or what would have happened if we could have made that work, if we could have found a way of cheating or all the laws of life and entering into something that's healthy and long-term and sustainable, what the fuck would that have looked like? Mm. What happens when you, when, when you make a life with the man who broke your heart numerous times and made you mad and sick? Because it does happen. And I do wonder what happens in those relationships. Do those women just, like, worry every day? Do they ever relax? Mm. You know, and and that's really what the question of this film is, I think.
1: Yeah, and that would have been so much more interesting if they just they had just leaned into that.
2: So let's move on to Miranda, who I'm sorry to say has a shit lid again.
1: Yeah, it's not a great. It's lid. not a good. It's not a good haircut, is it? They got it so right in that last season, but it's, I know it's, it feels oddly jagged again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So obviously Miranda is the main beats of her journey on this is she feels, you know, disconnected to Steve. She's overworked. She's kind of started to take him for granted a bit. It seems um, she seems like a bitch, to be honest, at home. That scene in the Italian restaurant with Magda and Brady just seems so miserable that you're you really are like, oh, poor old Steve. I don't blame him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I-, I really like that they do that.
2: Because I think I think the reality is, without sounding too down on parenthood, like every couple that I know who are really happy and madly in love and really solid, who've had kids, there's been one weekend where I hang out with them, where I'm just really? like, "Oh, you guys are you're going to get divorced." Really? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's like quite astonishing. every single couple and and they always get through it and they all and you know it's it's nothing it's no um it's no sign of any weakness in their marriage it's a sign of just how fucking difficult it is yeah to stay both on the same team and in love and respectively and individually yourselves and healthy and stable and also have careers and and raise a child together it's so so difficult so i actually the fact that it's like those early Miranda scenes with her family are so depressing. And I'm really pleased that the reality, which you know, this show has been known to evade. <laughs> <laughs> um the the reality of of what that juggling act can be mm. in midlife, I'm just so pleased that that there's evidence of it in this film.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, I, I I read this somewhere, I, I can't remember where I read this, but basically they said there are three ways for a married couple with children to have sex. Either they rigorously schedule uh, a weekly or fortnightly, you know, we fuck on Fridays at 9pm sort of thing. And it's in there and it's yeah. on the calendar and it has a code name on the wall calendar and all this. And they stick to that. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but by hell or high water, it's happening. Maintenance fucking. Yeah. Maintenance fucking. Option number two is they are so kinky to the point where you don't even know the names for the things they're into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they've, they've like. They literally like completely depart from their everyday lives sexually. Totally, totally. Which is an energy I respect and could never maintain. I know that about myself. Before I even have children, I could never maintain that energy, but I respect it hugely. The third option is that they never fuck. And that maybe once the kids are a bit older, a bit more self-sufficient, going to bed at a normal time, waking up at a normal time, then the sex life creeps back um or they build it back or whatever but that that, those are basically the options (laughs) they are I I absolutely think that they are
2: we do what my mum and dad did I can't believe that I fucking know this where basically once a week they told us until we were 10 years old that they were wrapping our Christmas presents it was like a memory I'd completely forgotten about until mum and dad got pissed and told us a few years ago and I suddenly was like you were always wrapping Christmas presents (laughs) Like in July, and we couldn't come into your room.
1: <laughs> that's so hot. I love that. Yeah, I I, do. I can't objectively see
2: it for how hot it is. It just makes me feel incredibly. Yeah, no, I but I do. That. <laughs> I do. But basically, that's like as, as as I don't want to contemplate my parents' sex life too much. But it's it's what you said. is that first one. It's basically like this is a, this is like this is a routine that we have to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but that's fucking hard work. The more you contrast it with Charlotte's like highly privileged position of being, you know, this woman in the situation where she doesn't have to work. I find it very interesting that you know Harry and Miranda do the same job essentially, but yeah, exactly. I mean, he's a divorce lawyer. I think she's in more in business or contracts or whatever. But, um, you know, he's able to provide for his family. Just with his salary and whatever maintenance the McDougal's are still paying for trades, <laughs> for trades dallians with Charlotte, <laughs> and um, and then meanwhile, like her, her and Miranda seem to live in like these total economic, totally different economic realities. Even though Miranda and Harry do the same job, but whatever, um, it makes me think like. Those arrangements where you have both parents who are working really hard, um, both doing the childminding, both doing housework, even though obviously Miranda and Steve have Magda, versus those couples who have a traditional arrangement of one couple, usually the woman, staying home. And whether those, those couples find it easier to make their sex life work for them because they have these regimented roles that don't bleed into each other you know it does make me wonder sometimes i had a friend say
2: to me when she was finishing mat leave and she uh was going back to work and she she had to work so they, they couldn't they couldn't survive on on just her her husband's salary she said to me i'm really envious of my of my mother's generation i really wish yeah. i didn't have to I really wish I didn't have to do this. I want more time with my children. I like that the the roles are really clearly boundaried and divided. I feel like I'm doing this well. I feel like I could do this for more time. And I feel like it helps our family and household and unit function really efficiently. And with, with, with zero resentment and with everyone feeling energized. Look, I know for a lot of people that will make their skin crawl and that feels like their worst nightmare. But... I don't know, I think there are some families for whom that would work. You know, irrespective of gender. Although obviously it's much, it's normally. Yeah. Yeah. It,
1: it, it's so interesting. It, it is like the central political issue that most people's lives come down to, you know? It is where yeah. the personal does become its most political. And I do think as well that it's a funny old thing because the economy has be, has got to a place where You know, a few decades ago, it was very feasible for a man with a very kind of middle of the road job to provide a quite middle class, let's face it, existence for his wife and young family. And now it feels less and less possible, although obviously you and I are both coming from a a London point of view, but I've got friends and family back in Cork who aren't living in an extremely expensive city and who aren't living with inflated rents and inflated mortgages and who still can't do it. And they, and like, they are the people as well who say to me, like, "I, I feel extremely envious of our mother's generation, you know? And it just feels like there's no good answer. Like it feels like the more answers we create, the more questions we create sometimes.
2: In terms of Steve's affair,
1: Mm. who do you think it is? I think it's definitely someone who works at the bar. Me too. He's too lazy
2: for it to not be just circumstantial.
1: Oh, totally. Totally. Like... When it comes to men in affairs, it's always reaching out and touching Faith, right? It's just always, like, yeah. whoever is, whatever, like, woman is just around. I think it's just, like, some rando bar girl, not dissimilar. Like, obvious, obviously, I'm sure Shayla has moved on, or Shayna <laughs> has moved on from Scout in the years since. But I think it's the same vibe. It's some sexy gal he plays jacks with on the bar. And yeah. uh, they, they probably shagged in, like, the... In like I don't know the stock room or something, just a a quickie, and it clearly ruins has ruined his life. I do think David Eigenberg does a great job there. He does look like a man haunted, doesn't he?
2: Yeah, I think maybe a bit too haunted.
1: What do you mean? Do you think he's he? He not only had sex, he also murdered someone.
2: Yeah, he looks like he he's about to say, I had sex with somebody. And then I hit them over the head with a space. And they're in the back guard. They're in the back garden, Miranda.
1: The way that like he's shaking You're so right! There's something so weird going on with fucking Steve Brady in these movies. He he does seem like he's the subject of a true crime podcast aimed at women, isn't he? <laughs> He does. Like, oh well, everyone knows about the Scout Brady murders. When he
2: when he turns up at that rehearsal dinner, it looks like he's about to get a gun out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He really does. Oh God, he really does. I do think some of the best stuff in this movie is that New Year's Eve montage where it's Carrie. Oh, the only good use of music in the whole film. I know. Oh, you can't go wrong with Our Lang Syne, can you?
2: Totally. I mean, it closes... It closes my favourite film of all time. It closes when Harry met Sally, with Harry wondering what the nonsensical meanings, meaning of the words are. Yeah. But it is, like, there's something about that particular cover as
1: well is so beautiful. Literally, it, the film... Like, the camera could be holding on a Labrador taking a dump, and if Old Lang Syne <laughs> is playing over it, I am in floods. Me too. Just quivering on his haunches. <laughs> Auld Lang Syne, my Joe. <laughs> With a slow motion
2: turd on curling. Um... <laughs> yeah it does it really gets me the fact that it's snowing is obviously lovely and the fact that she can't get a cab so it does feel like a rom-com like yeah
1: you know
2: she's running through new york in the snow to get to her and it does it feels like this is one of their new year's eves that's one of those those New Year's Eves that happened as you get old, where it's like, wow, we're all really living our own separate lives. Like, you know, when you have one of those New Year's Eves where there's not even really a discussion that anyone's going to be spending it together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because
2: Samantha and Smith are in LA in matching sequin pajamas,
1: <laughs> drinking
2: champagne, which is, I cannot stress enough, like the only energy I'm ever trying to get to <laughs> in a relationship.
1: <laughs> the minute I saw it, I was like, that is that is what she wants. That's it. <laughs> she wants her and matching, beautiful, blonde, like, sibling relationship in a black sequin jammy thing. Yeah,
2: I basically, that's what I want, twinsy relationships. I find it very hot. <laughs> Twinsy-pajama relationships. I just, I think they, they do look like two little dolls in their mad little outfits drinking <laughs> champagne. I'm like, God, that just looks so fun. Um, And then you've got Charlotte with Harry and Lily and then Miranda's on her own and Carrie's on her own. And then when she gets to her, the end of her chase, when she tracks down the girl and Miranda opens the door, she just holds her and just
1: really quietly says, you're not alone. And that always makes me cry. It really makes me cry too. And I do think there is something that just like... And it's the same when it's Carrie running across Paris to get to her book party, you know, to to find herself kind of thing. It's like when... It's so powerful when like those tropes that belong to romance culture are subverted to be about something... Else, you know, whether it's friendship or or the self or whatever, you know, it's it's so affecting. It's it's so easy. Like the formula is so easy. It's so easy, (laughs) but it's so good. Another thing, another thing, um, you and I noticed when we were watching this was when it cuts away to big, (laughs) and he's like (laughs) eating a steak in the middle of a party, like that's filled with twenty two year olds. But the room looks a bit like it's on a cruise as really? oh, well. It's such a depressing room. So fun You and I were just pissing ourselves every time I cut to... <laughs> cut to a big just awkwardly eating a steak with, like, everyone in party hats around him. Where is he? And then going
2: home and <laughs> going home and going on to Goodreads. To cut and paste a large <laughs> section of text into an email
1: to his, to his <laughs> girlfriend. Oh my God. <laughs> and I also, immediately going to spam. I also think that like, seeing as we see big here, that like the movie is really missing. It, it almost like doesn't have the guts to write a post-jilting breakup scene you know, Mm. where like Mm. she goes to pick up something. Cause like, it's just, that's another thing that feels really untrue about their whole breakup. Cause it just, it just never happens that somebody breaks up or they're jilted or whatever. And then they just never chat to the person again. You know, he just falls off a cliff, you know, like, I just don't believe it. Like he would be hammering on her door.
2: What is in this film? Because I feel like there are so many missing scenes and unresolved (laughs) storylines but it's so
0: long
1: what is the bulk of it yeah what's in it like it's it's close it's it's trying on clothes it's like that that big bloody scene where you know that I want to love but every time I look back on it I love it less and less where they're clearing out her flat and it's Carrie trying on outfits and them holding up you know take toss signs and all of the outfits are outfits we've never seen before, apart from the tutu. And they're just like, it's like, they they put on like White Snake or some kind of 80s music and it's like her modelling all the outfits she used to wear in the 80s, which is very specifically a time we didn't know this character. So it's like, (laughs) it's nostalgia for these characters, but it's not for the audience. (laughs) It's like, why didn't she just put on the newspaper dress or something? Because, Because, do you know what
2: I think they're doing? I think they are very lazily borrowing from those mid naughties rom-com tropes that had done so well from like twenty-seven dresses mm. or from, you know, and it's that's that's when there's an intersection between this quite like cynical cinema cinemification mm. <laughs> made up word of the TV show of just trying to yeah. like squeeze it into a formula that makes it feel like
1: it's gonna be a no-brainer success. It's so yeah, that's so that's very well observed. And it does sort of further help place this movie in the context of other movies that were happening at the time because this is like at the dawn of a of a moment in filmmaking where and you hear filmmakers talking about this a lot on podcasts and that kind of thing, where essentially the middle brow of films were being stripped out. So obviously the 90s was this great time for rom-com. We so you had, you know, you had Richard Curtis, you had Nora Ephron, you had Julia Roberts making all those great movies. That like realistically didn't really cost that much money and might have a kind of a slightly expensive race to the uh, like a the altar or race to the bloody, you know, airport at the end. But ultimately they could make them for 20 million dollars kind of thing. Yeah. And then what happens in the noughties is this middle section where of kind of slightly affordable movies get stripped out and it becomes this thing where it's like, you can make a movie for $10 or you can make it for $150 million, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we start seeing with the Catherine Heigl movies, all those kind of quite soulless, made by committee, not, it's not very clever, not very warm, not very charismatic movies that come out around that time. And Texan yeah. City is one of them where they feel... Very harsh, very bright, the color contrast feels really high up, and no one really yeah. connects to them in the same way and that's i, I feel like that scene really situates this movie Definitely. in those movies I couldn't
2: agree with you more it's it's so symptomatic of of a of a period it, of what of what an audience was asking for what people were responding well to and to be honest people that's probably the scene the top five scene that people remember from that yeah. movie, yeah. I actually think the most emotionally naturalistic and and powerful scene that happens in the film is not between Steve and Miranda when um, he admits his infidelity. I don't actually think it's even between Big and Carrie uh, when he jilts her. I think it is the argument that takes place on Valentine's Day evening between Miranda and Carrie where Miranda reveals that she said something to Big that she thinks might have made him have cold feet about the wedding. Mm. And Sarah Jessica Parker, the way she delivers those lines when she says to her, what do you mean? And the look on her face, I think it's like one of her best performances
1: she's mm. ever given. It's it's so, it feels improvised, that scene. You're so, yeah, you really are right. And I think as well when it's like, the the, the the cycle of heartbreak with Carrie is actually captured very well. And that is the bulk yes. of the movie in answer to your question. It is these sort of like almost like disorientated, the disjointed sort of the way you are when you're heartbroken, when you're not quite tethered to the earth kind of thing. Yes. And yeah. There's, there's something that she says to Miranda and, she, and she, she looks at her and she's like, I have been replaying those days in my head. Endlessly for the last for six months, and you give me this now, and like it's so I can totally understand the anger in that when you do obsess over those moments in your life where it all fell apart, and the idea that someone so close to you could keep such a key piece of information, even though realistically I don't think it was
2: that key. No, and I do actually think the reconciliation of that argument is the thing that that judders Miranda's story into life really which is when carrie says to her you've badgered me for three days for forgiveness Mm. and you know you don't understand why i can't forgive forgive you but you won't even contemplate opening up a conversation with steve um and it's been six months so really like because it all feels a bit tenuous to me that like Miranda having this information for half mm. of the film that she needs to reveal and there's this dramatic irony that we know that Miranda you know in Carrie's word words ruined her marriage. I don't know if I believe that but I think it just t- it does tie in back into Miranda's story quite yeah. well.
1: Another thing that you and I loved about this was the fact that uh, her and Steve start going to couples counseling and we see none of it. <laughs> Basically, none of it. Like, I, I, I wonder if they've shot loads of it, but they just edited it down to, like, two seconds where it's basically Steve saying, oh, you know, I don't know if I could trust you. <laughs> Why do I know you're not going to let me, you know, go on about this forever? And then it cuts immediately to Samantha and Carrie eating a pret in Central Park, <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> we freeze-framed on the
2: pret numerous times, but we couldn't get the exact sandwich. Caroline thinks that it's a BLT for SJP and a chicken and avocado for Miranda. Yeah, yeah,
1: I definitely we saw a also, bit of pink that,
2: that indicates bacon, yeah. We also picked up this time around that the therapist who says in a halting voice, and we'll find that out talking here every week, is um, Rachel Green's smoky Boss. <gasps> yes, it is. Smokey Jones, Yeah. There's, it's interesting that question about why don't we see the therapy. I don't know if I'm don't know if i talking out of my arse here um, because obviously The Sopranos did it very well and who else did it well? Jill Soloway did it well in her first feature in Afternoon Delight. I'm just thinking about where therapy scenes have been really explored. Um, but I have tried to put therapy scenes mm. into shows before. I've tried to put it in structured reality a lot and I've tried to put it in scripts. And it's like one of those phrases that producers and commissioners say, which is no one is interested in scenes of therapy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're so obviously lazy. They do. They also do the same job that a judge does in on screen, which is that you have somebody who's not connected to the action summing up the problem. Like, oh, you know, so Mr. Jones, you're here on two counts of offense, three accounts of battery, four accounts of domestic abuse. Like, oh, we know everything we need to know about this character before we even met him. We've already made up our mind. Yeah, And it does the same thing with a the therapist where it's like, well, you came in here because you said you can't connect to your wife. You can't stop cheating on her. It's, I think they're very lazy devices and the less they're used, the better, I think. Totally. I think you have to really earn them
2: and I think you have to do something really uh, inventive with them. And I think, because they are just, they are just a really lazy way
1: of, get, of getting under the skin of a character as well. I do feel post the Sopranos there was a real love affair with therapists in culture for a while, wasn't there? Remember mm-hmm. like analyze this and analyze that, which basically yes. they ripped off the entire concept of the Sopranos wholesale. It was so yeah. shameless. I'm so mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: I tried so hard to get it into a reality show and it's and actually we did we did shoot quite a lot of it and then it was just it, it was a few lines that was left in yeah it's also just therapy is never really as interesting to anyone else and the conversations are never as impactful and revealing as they are to the person who's going through it
1: yeah yeah. What is great though is when you're in your early twenties and you're broke and you have friends who are slightly older who can afford therapy, and then you kind of you have sort of a herd immunity therapy through them. Where just... Oh my god! I did that for years. Me too. There was one friend in
2: us, in us, in our group who could afford therapy. And the rest of us couldn't. And it was just this, like, recycled wisdom.
1: I know. I was getting, yeah. It was so good. And you'd be, like, you know, you'd be pouring your heart out to your mates and and you'd go, oh, what what does Michelle say about this? (laughs) Everyone knows what the therapist's name is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's interesting is that I think Charlotte has the least to do in this film. And, like, as we said before with Samantha... Um, and the fact that because she's not actively pursuing, like, a new love interest in this movie, she then becomes, like, the matriarch. Charlotte, because, like, so much of what her plot on the show was her just, like, desperately wanting things she can never get, which is, yeah you know, whether it's a baby or a fulfilling sex life or whatever. Because she has everything in this movie, she just becomes a conduit for the audience more than anything else. So like there are several moments in the movie where like like you know she says to Big in her big confrontation with him you know I was always on your side and you go and you do that to Carrie it's like she, her emotions are just so on the surface all the time it's like she's there to remind us how we feel about things
2: yeah 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 exactly <laughs> she's also there just to like be a Republican I think
1: yes we have so Republican many
2: thoughts on Charlotte. This. Republican Charlotte is just like not a character development that I enjoy. And I do wonder if it is like that they're appealing to a to a larger audience than this. it's like she becomes the slightly more kind of conservative America
1: voice. It's so weird. And I think but basically we're inferring that Charlotte is a Republican based on the fact that she has an extremely xenophobic suspicion of Mexico. <laughs> And the entire time she's there, she hates the pudding. And I think that when I watched that uh, younger, as a younger person, with less of a knowledge of America, I just saw that as being... And I think this is how it's intended, obviously, is like, oh, Charlotte is kind of an uptight prude. And of course she thinks this about Mexico. But post-Trump and post, you know, the wall and all this kind of shite, it just feels like such... A sort of a xenophobic racist underpinning of the next few years of what America is going to be and they don't even know yet totally and it's an
2: inherent conservatism that that has always been there with that character a suspicion of anything that doesn't adhere specifically to her tastes and you see it in the second film as well when she's Really judgmental about Big and Carrie in their marital arrangement. It just, it does feel like it's a natural character development that Charlotte would be someone who gets quite stuck in her ways and closes her mind to things as she gets older.
1: This is something I have always maintained, which is that I am convinced that Charlotte and Ivanka Trump are friends. (laughs) Think about it. They probably are. New, New York society couple. Both of them converted to Judaism for their partners. Like there's so a world where Harry Goldenblatt works with Jared Kushner, yeah. And like you can so see them sort of meeting at Soul Cycle and then meeting again at a kind of like a political, you know, mixer sort of thing, and them being mates. And I just think it's such a missed opportunity. And I also think that Ivanka would have killed for a cameo. <laughs> she would have done
2: it's a missed opportunity because I also think that there isn't enough there isn't enough paid attention to in the films of how do friendship groups change as you get older and how do you drift apart Mm. and Charlotte would be the first one to fall off definitely yeah yeah she'd form a different group of friends she'd form like park rich park avenue mum friends
1: yeah yeah and they definitely exist, I think. I also think it's interesting and I I'm interested I'm really excited to see how this happens as my group of friends gets older and their children get older as well. The politics of whose kids play together. Like do Brady yes, and Lily exactly. play together? I don't yeah. think they do. I don't think they do. I think Charlotte thinks that like Brady is like a grody little gnome and yeah, that Lily I think, I is think... just like the most perfect child ever.
2: I think that Brady once broke something
1: charging around in the flat. Oh my God. There's a deleted scene for you. Yeah. I'll get cracking on it. Get cracking. There's so a version of like, you know, the the scene that we love with Tatum O'Neill and a woman's right to shoes and about yes. and all that. There's so a, kind of a flip side of that exact same episode where it's like Brady breaks something in the beautiful Park Avenue apartment and Miranda has to replace it and it's like $15,000 antique left yeah. over from the McDougal legacy. <laughs> As I say, Caroline, ask and ye shall receive. Oh, I want, I, Keep I, I, your I, inbox open for these schemes. can hit and refresh every hour of every day. <laughs> I also think that Kristen Davis in this movie is the absolute proof as to why actresses should never get Botox or work to their face done because her face does so much work in this film. Yeah. Her expressions, it's like, I don't know, it's like she's got more eyes in her eyes or something. It's just... Yeah, she has. God, Charlotte is just hardly in this, is she? No, her main story is that Obviously, she gets pregnant, which, as an audience member, it's a huge thing, having tracked this journey with this woman who's had such an issue with her fertility. But then the main thing around it is that, like, she's afraid to run. It's like, oh, Um, but you love to run. Yes, I know, but I'm afraid to run. But maybe you should run. And then Charlotte ran. (laughs) It's like... Yeah, that's so strangely structured that bit. Yeah, it's resolved within about forty seconds.
2: I do quite like the neatness of the way that Big re-enters Carrie's life is through yes. the the bump in of the of Charlotte and and Big and the fact that Big takes her to the hospital like they do manage to pull that off. That's quite a hard one to pull yes. off. Yes. And they do manage to do it, I think, just about.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, it, and it's just, like, it's so good watching her freaking out at him as well. Like, it really is very earned. And this thing of, like, she... This thing of she knows exactly what she wants to say and now it's finally her opportunity to say it and she kind of is realising that the opportunity is missing her and you just watch that information really register on her face and then she's like, "Ah, I cursed the day you were born!
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it's also so believable that when a man wrongs one of your best friends, you do, you write a speech in your head. You do think of what, you like I know word for word what I would say to every man who's been horrible to one of my best friends if I bumped into them. I've got it just... It's in the filing cabinet. It's never going to not be in there.
1: Remember how last week we talked about how our, like, fantasy for life is that um, our ex-boyfriends will run into us with our new film star boyfriend and be like, when when it messed up, the best thing I ever had. (laughs) And you just get to sit there and listen. (laughs) (laughs) My fantasy... Adjacent to that fantasy is, you know, that scene in season three where Samantha's going out with Maria and, Bi- yes. and Big is showing up at her birthday meal or some kind of meal or yes. whatever. And Samantha says to Big, That girl out there might look tough, but she's fragile. <laughs> that is I love that my bit. fantasy. I almost want Gavin to break it off with me and then, you know, screw me around for a bit and mess with my heart just so I could have you say to him, That say that, that girl out there might look tough, but she's fragile.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just please believe me that the minute Gavin puts a foot wrong, I will be opening up the old Google Doc, and I will be
1: drafting. I will be drafting the speech. That's like it's such a fantasy because I think it's because like because Gavin is so irritatingly decent and on like also yeah. very like very fair and like doesn't really. Um, do like bizarre or cruel things to anyone ever it's such Mm. a fantasy that he would just act badly and that everybody would like assemble to my defence and just be like that woman is an angel
2: (laughs) well do you know what I don't want to tempt fate but sometimes those men do it so darling it might not be too late for you he might ruin your life sweetheart then we might all tell Gavin what an angel you are so fingers
0: crossed (laughs)
2: That reminds me of my friend who has been in like very stable, very loving, but ultimately like quite boring in terms of narrative, narrative, narratively speaking, uh, relationships her whole life. And I remember when we were like 19 being in a car together and irreplaceable from Beyonce coming on the radio. And she admitted to me that sometimes when she listens to those songs, she just prays that her boyfriend is horrible to her one day so she can understand what those songs mean.
1: <gasps> I relate so to that fake, so much. Singing along
2: to like "To the Left, To the Left," everything you own in a box to the left. Like she felt yeah. so
1: like she, it was in you know. Uh, I, I
2: get how frustrating that must be.
1: I remember that when when um, Lemonade came out, and obviously it's such a you know a furious "Go Fuck Yourself" album to men. And at the same time, one of my really close friends was going through like the most horrific breakup you could possibly imagine in that there was like, not only was it personally crushing, but there was also a public element to it as well. And um, I I remember listening to that song, listening to those songs and just pretending to be her (laughs) so I could feel it more. (laughs) So good.
2: (sighs) Listen, mate, you can borrow some of mine. Oh, I do that too. I pretend to be you as well.
1: (laughs) So as we said already, we really love Samantha in this movie. She's great fun. Uh, I do think there's a lot of missed opportunities here with Samantha's storyline. Which is that, you know, she's out in LA. Smith is obviously this big deal and we get all these like delicious context clues about what kind of a big deal Smith is. Like in her office where she, she appears to just manage him full time now. Uh there's loads of like magazine covers that are blown up and framed on her walls and they're all of him like as a doctor and I think he's supposed to it's be really like funny. George Clooney like and like he's on an ER type show or something or he was at some point.
2: It's really funny. I'd never noticed it before, but there's like it's like a really good little slapstick gag that every room that samantha walks through like she goes into the hallway of her office there's a huge picture of smith she goes up the yeah. stairs there's a huge poster of smith everywhere's a poster of smith and as you said on the front of all these magazine covers it just says things like the doctor will see you now <laughs> and it's smith looking really smoldering on gq I do. it must have been a George Clooney yes. reference. Basically what they what they must be trying to say with that is like this man, this woman has made this man's career and fame so stratospheric that he's one of the most recognizable men in the world and she now can just have him as a client and and be,
1: you know, a millionaire. And that's what I love. I actually it made me think of like I do think that the most effective sort of spin-offs on franchises or whatever are um, are things where they take um, a little element from the world that existed before and then they just, like, explore it, you know? So it's, like, something we're always slightly curious about, but then let's really get to the bottom of it. And that's why Frasier works so well, right? Because Frasier was yes. an erotic character on Cheers and they were curious to see how Kelsey Grammar would do, you know, if we explore that character to the nth degree. I think there's a world where we could have almost like the Joey of Sex and the City. I say,
2: it's very Joey, yeah, yeah.
1: But I would love a world where it's like, this woman who is very egotistical and very self-involved, and what's that speech she says about herself? It's like, um, I'm also something, self-involved and always right. You know, it's like this, yeah. she knows who she is and she loves herself. Having, having to build this person's career in LA, the city she doesn't really like with this. And if we think about like what LA represents culturally as well. This idea of like these very precious, very feelingsy people, people um, you know, who are full of their kind of health fads and everything and the ways in which Samantha would and wouldn't blend with that kind of community would yes. be so good but we don't see any yeah. of it. All we see is her sort of lusting after her neighbour and like eating lots of pudding from a little jar. <laughs> and it's just... And sitting on the balcony of what Caroline has
2: identified as a retirement complex.
1: Caroline's got a real issue with that with that house. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird, that house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that retirement They, They, like, if you look at the external shots and, like, her hanging out on her balcony and stuff, it looks like the kind of place where, like, telegraph readers go to retire in Spain. <laughs> It's, like, lots of, like, white stucco building, (laughs) lots of turquoise pool, big hat, single-serve balcony. I can just now
2: see that telegraph, you know, those pull-ups that they do with those,
1: those like, sleeping hats. Yes! And those...
2: (laughs) You you could sell your home
1: and live here. (laughs) So weird. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wonder if they even filmed it in L.A., well yeah cuz you see nothing that's recognizably LA. You see nothing of California. You don't yeah. even see her driving. Yeah, I
2: think I think it's a missed opportunity because I think Samantha Samantha on the West Coast is obviously it could be a very mm. funny fish out of water story and Samantha being usurped by notoriety mm. by her partner and Samantha's career being you know contextualized by her partner and by a man is a fish out of water story as well so it's just missed opportunities
1: and what's so um frustrating is that they allude to it so much this this great line she has where it's like is loving a man saying his name 15 times more a day than i say my own which is so interesting yeah. and and this and the thing with her ring even though it's just silly like decadent plot line of the two of them just driving the price of this fucking ring up, which really stresses me out. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Of like, you know, her looking at being like, I wanted to buy this for myself. That meant something to me. And Mm. like, I just think, and as well, all that delicious Samantha backstory that we unearthed slash made up in previous episodes of her kind of being the sort of, you know, prettiest middle daughter from a kind of a... Bruce springsteen working class background yeah. who goes and makes something yeah. of herself in New York and like the idea of that success story ultimately ending in LA with this movie star boyfriend is so good and we just see so little of it and what we do get instead, her getting a shit depressing dog and her having this shit depressing plot line of her apparently gaining like three and a half pounds and everyone around her having an aneurysm about it It's really shocking
2: that storyline, watching it back. Not only that, that, it's shocking on two counts. It's shocking that this would be seen as, you know, something that would be offensive to people or shocking to people or that would be immediately indicative of unhappiness or a tragic end. That is just insane that narratively that's what they chose to manifest her, like floundering is in weight gain. But it's also, she's still an extraordinarily slim woman. Like, there's no weight gain. I don't know what they thought they were. It's like the characters are seeing Samantha's body in a way that the rest of us aren't. She just looks like
1: exactly how she looked before. It's so mental. It's really weird. It really... It does kind of like gaslight the audience in a strange way. Like, I've never, there's no lens with which I've watched that movie. And I've watched it so many times over the last however many years. And every time I always look to the person next to me and I'm like, what are we, what are we looking at here? You yeah. know? And, and this kind of, a, this very, it's, what well, at this point I'm starting to call my, like, Carrie's let me dribble hot tea on you voice where she's being incredibly condescending and you'd ra- you'd rather like set her on fire than have her speak to you again. Where she's like, honey, you would look beautiful at any size, but you know, what's going on? It's like, oh, I hate it.
2: And I just, oh. The first thing Anthony says when he sees her is, Jesus, honey, what's with the gut? Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's kind of encouraging, isn't it? That at the time, I remember finding it a bit odd. I definitely didn't find it offensive. It's encouraging how shocking it is watching it now. Because it makes you realise how far we've come with conversations about body positivity and just generally how we talk about women's bodies and how we use women's bodies for stories on screen that even you know, 12 years later, which is quite a small amount of time in the grand scheme of culture, yeah. that now feels like we're watching something that is offensive as of something you'd put on in, like, the 1940s.
1: <laughs> it really does. It re- yeah, it, it yeah. Fe- like, ridiculously dated. Um, not even Daisy, just in another universe. But it's, like, it's so... Yeah, exactly, it's so mad that when we when you know you and I were just you know sitting thinking about this for 10 minutes we can think of all these angles of for Samantha's life that we'd love to see that we don't get to see and what they decided instead was a dog and her eating a lot because she's rechanneling her sex drive into food which I guess is kind of interesting but I mean
2: I would have loved to have seen the Samantha struggling with L.A. thing, the Samantha struggling with, you know, losing her power in her head because she's kind of Mm -hmm. given it over to managing a man. And I would have loved her saying to Smith, let's try an open relationship. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like something where she struggles with the notion of monogamy and she tries to work out how she can stay, like, and she tries to work out how she can stay stimulated in a long-term relationship. That would have been so much more interesting to me than her apparently putting on weight because she's
1: miserable and having a humpy dog, a humpy Yorkshire Terrier. Yeah, it's interesting that that doesn't come up at all, the idea of an open relationship or them, you know, maybe bringing more people into their marriage or whatever. Like, because with so many things, Sex and the City was ahead of the curve. Like, which is why I remember yeah. when I when I was asked to write about it for Vogue... Um, The editor said to me, like, oh, I'd love you to touch on what the girls would think of clean eating or social media or all these things. And And I remember saying back to her, I was like, I... Sex and City doesn't follow trends, it makes them. You know, there's so many things. Yes, exactly. Like, for example, the clean yeah. eating thing. Like, that episode with Raw that introduced us to Smith-Jair yeah. in the first place. That was years before anyone heard about, like, drinking fucking cold wheatgrass. And now, like, every dog on the street is doing it. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, and like, and they, they were ahead of the curve in so many ways. And it would have been such a good move for them because because non monogamy and polyamory and all different differentiations of that have been so hugely part of the conversation of the last sort of five or six years it would have been so interesting to see them get ahead of that chat, but maybe I'm being too magic eight ball here, and I'm expecting them to just see the future
2: no i I think it's actually character driven like I think that that I think that they missed those plots weren't character driven with Samantha and actually. The thing we know about her, as we've said, is that she likes having sex with lots of people. She likes new lovers. So it just makes no sense to me that that's just not explored at all when we
1: find her five years later having been with the same man. Yeah, I do like as well how it sort of highlights the intense boredom that comes with fame and how much of fame is just people waiting around for other people.
2: Yeah, and also how boring it is to sleep with the most beautiful man alive yeah when he's like going to bed at seven o'clock and he has to get up at five a.m to go to the gym like actually being with a movie star I think would be like a really hot movie star who's in action films I think it would be the most boring life you could choose for yourself
1: the worst life I think yeah because there's nothing it's so it's such an interesting dilemma isn't it because to create this, like, uber-masculine, like, fantasy alpha male physique, you have to live this fussy little lifestyle. Fussy
2: little, so, yes, exactly, neurotic life. Yeah,
1: that no woman finds attractive, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so true. It's a great irony. It's so good, and it reminds me a lot of... um. Emily Gordon, who is a writer and is married to the actor Kamal Nanjiani. And he was recently sort of swept up into the sort of Marvel franchise thing. And he's going to be in this movie. And so he had to go through this ridiculous kind of like body sculpting thing. And this is a guy who, you know, previously he had what Heat magazine would call a dad bod. And she, you know, once he sort of revealed his big sort of body transformation, um, he put it on his Instagram and she put the same picture on her Instagram. And the caption was basically like, ladies, the last year of my life has been. And then she listed all the things that she couldn't do with her husband. It's like, yeah, he's been going to bed yeah. at this time. He's been getting up to see his trainer at 5 a.m. We don't get pizza anymore. We don't go to restaurants. I hate this life. I'm proud of him for doing it, but this fucking sucks. And like, yeah, that is the only time I've ever heard anyone talk about that. What it's like to have sex with somebody who's living in that bubble of having to look like that yeah I think it's really important
2: because I was just thinking like the female equivalent of that is is the cool girl thing isn't it yes that we want women to look like supermodels but we're also told that the women who are that cool and beautiful eat burgers and drink beer all day yeah yeah and it would never bother you with any sort of diet plan or having to wake up early and go to the gym. Or, yeah,
1: okay, it, It's so it's so weird because all women want from those women is for them to say, like, yeah, it's incredibly difficult to maintain this lifestyle. I, I really hate it. But for, but this is part of my job. You know, it's like the same way that bodybuilders are, but they 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 won't yeah. ever do it because they live under the patriarchy just like us, you know. <laughs>
2: Do you know who did do it? And I remember as a teenager having such deep respect for her, Liz Hurley. I remember reading an interview where she was like, because Liz Hurley, I don't know if you remember this. I definitely remember as a teenager, she had that kind of body that's like a work of art that people study that like, you know, back in the day of she with MGM, she would have insured her legs. Like yeah. She had that level of like, you know, um, physical perfection. Um, it, around her body and around discussions of her body. And I remember her saying in an interview, I go to bed hungry every night and once a week, every month, I just eat watercress soup every day. And I remember like from a really young age, having really fucked up thoughts about body image. But I remember that being really powerful for me. Yeah. Like, Oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'm okay with not having that body because I'm never going to be able to do that. Yeah.
1: The way Samantha's storyline is wrapped up in this movie, I actually really love. The thing of... I do. I love you, but I love me more. And the, the voiceover being of like, you know, some romances aren't these great epics, some are short stories, you know? I think it's great. I love the way her and Smith part.
2: I do. And I also think that there's a nice symmetry for the fans there that that's exactly what she said to Richard. Yes, yes. And do you remember with Richard, she leaves the Canary Diamond on the table in Atlantic City and she goes to take the ring off with Smith. So it's an exact mirroring breakup scene. She goes to take the ring off and he says, no, I want you to keep it. And she says, okay, I will, because every time I look down, I'll think of you. And it's so Mm. markedly different, those two relationships and how they end. She's so traumatised by that relationship with Richard that she doesn't want any relic of him on her, ever, because she loves herself too much. She loves herself more than him. But with Smith, something about her deciding to keep that ring, it's like that love has changed her, and she will always keep a part of him with her and cherish Mm. that, that part of who she is that he helped
1: nurture. And you know what he's gonna keep from their relationship? The, those wow. chin implants. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that that she bullied him into getting plastic surgery?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, I do.
1: Do you I think do. it was like a liberace thing where he wants she wanted him to look like her?
2: <laughs> oh my god, so liberace. Yes, that's I love that take. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. This is probably the right moment to tell everyone that. Um, One of the big divides between Caroline and I, as we know, is um, the Russian. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one, uh, as I mentioned, is that we have differing opinions on the the ethics of watching people's Instagram (laughs) stories, but not liking their posts. I think the third great divide between us is the website Cameo.
1: Yes, it is. (laughs) I don't love Cameo, but you do. (laughs) I'm a... I'm absolutely addicted.
2: Absolutely addicted. I'm averaging about 25% of my salary every month is going on cameos. (laughs) I wanted, as a nice finale to Sentimental in the City, to get a little cameo. Not just for us, for the listeners, but Caroline and I searched the Sex in the City cast on cameo Hoping that we would see Smith Jared and his chin implants, and
1: what we found was just—it was all too sad. It does feel like this is why I don't like Cameo. It feels like going to Battersey Dogs Home. It feels exactly that. It feels like you're there among the three-legged rescue greyhounds and the abused staffies, and you, you, you. Thought you were coming to see a bunch of cute dogs and no pressure to adopt. But actually, when you're there, you're just mired in the bog of sadness and rejection. and It's awful. And I I, I totally understand the, the need for cameo and that, like, actors haven't been able to work a lot in the last year. And it's another form of revenue. But looking at Willie Garson in his flat with the with the poster blue tacked to the wall behind him, if I like, put that poster in a frame, Willie, you know, like just it really bums me out.
2: <laughs> it said, "I Richard Wright." Um... Uh, is is looking his age. He hasn't aged badly. He's just, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of time has passed. So he's still a handsome man and there's nothing wrong with looking older. It just reminds you that a lot of time has passed and when we watched that actor and the cameos that he was doing, (laughs) Caroline said it made her hate time. (laughs) I do hate time. Cameo is very bad for (laughs) for making you think about time.
1: (laughs) So anyway... That's
2: the reason why we don't have a cameo for the end of this episode.
1: Oh my god, you're making me feel like fucking Sally Field and Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> like you had the you hired the petting zoo but then I came home and shut everything down. I just think I just think cameo is sad. <laughs> it is. It is. However, I wouldn't have minded if you'd bought um the cameo of uh, the actor who plays Anthony Maratino, because he was the only person of all the cameo preview videos we watched, um, where he was like in on the joke. He was being really like camp about yes. it and like really overdoing it. And I I thought that was very that joyful. That was that and I was, that okay was more that. of a
2: clean high. That was I remember we said it's that yeah. it's not entirely guilt free <laughs> as as a feeling, but it's it's it's, it's a it's. Less guilty than than the other ones. <laughs> Should we round up with our Dream yeah, Boys clangers and outfits?
1: I notice when I look at the doc here that under Dream Boy we have... I've got one no one. It.
2: Isn't that bad?
1: I didn't fancy a single person. Not even your man Horatio next door or whatever. The guy who's dick Dante. we see. I'm the same. I, I would not fuck anyone in that film. <laughs> yeah. Which I is just surely like a failure of the film. I feel like the her like her fancying him and us supposed to fancy him as well. It feels like they're really pushing it on us, you know. Yeah. Like it feels, it feels yeah, it feel like the kind of sexuality where like someone's paid to be nice to you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. That's how it feels watching it as a film. Like it's he's too like, spoon. Out- it's too spoon fed. Yeah, there's no subtlety or whatever to it. No. Yeah, is there anyone I would shag in this movie? Um, the woman with the paper towels in the bathroom. <laughs> she was a smart girl. That one. Yeah. The sad thing is, I knew her.
2: <laughs> I think so. I think mine's Samantha. She's the only person I'd shag in this film. Wow, never thought we'd have that. No dream boy.
1: I mean, the thing is, feasibly, it could be. Um, Louise from St. Louis's boyfriend. But we don't really meet him. I think... No. The only times we see him are, like, there's music playing over a montage of him. And he looks yeah. he looks lovely, but, like, I don't get to hear what he has to say or anything. There's no, yeah. like... All, all we get from that is, like, oh, Louise's story is wrapped up. It's like, okay. Yeah. Thanks. I do think that Chris Noth... There is, like... If we want to look at the quality of a season of Sex and the City... Chris Noth is the litmus test because he is miles away. <laughs> oh, he's not there. Miles he's away. He's not there. Yeah. That's, that's the end when they reunite in the closet. He is thinking about craft services. He's not there. Totally. And I don't blame him. Shite. Also, why didn't they fuck in that closet? I think it's implied that they do, but for some reason, when it cuts to it, they're just lying on the ground in all their clothes. (laughs) Um, Clanger of the movie? Um, I think probably all of Carrie's
2: interactions with Louise. How about you? Um,
1: Is there any of that that I like? I like when Louise gives her the DVD. I like the DVD, yeah. (laughs) That's I do like the a, DVD. That's an appropriate gift to give your employer if you feel fondly towards them.
2: I do like the DVD, but I don't like the, the wordplay with the name. So actually the DVD's yeah. slightly ruined for me.
1: Yeah, I, I think Jennifer Hudson's performance in that scene is good. She's very, like, she's quite naturalistic in general. Like, I think she's it's a decent She's charming. Yeah. I think
2: she's charming. Yeah, I just don't like the dynamic in the interactions.
1: Yeah. All right, so let's move on to fashion.
2: You don't really like the fashion in this film, do you? Because you've got a bit of an aversion to what you call dowdy jewel tones of the noughties.
1: Yes, I have a lot to say on this. I've written about it elsewhere. It's called what I call the dowdy (laughs) twenties. And the dowdy twenties are a period in your early 20s I'm going to say sort of 22 to 24 where you're earning fuck all money but you're expected to be a professional person and so yeah. so like you're, you're you're working in offices for the first time and you don't really know how to work to how to wear the stuff like other people seem to be doing it but you are sort of appropriating what office wear is based on your limited knowledge of what to buy, where to buy it, and your limited budget. And so you end up going to like TK Maxx and buying all these little capped sleeves, jewel-coloured dresses, and they're they're made of this very like tight material. Stretchy. They're very tight, stretchy yeah. like scuba diving material. But they're very conservative, like they cover up your, a lot of your body. Yes. But they're very tight, and you feel like a sausage in them. And,
2: you and know, what jewel tones are we talking here? We're talking teal, raspberry, teal,
1: sapphire, ruby, like all those kinds of colors. And so you know that famous bit from The Devil Wears Prada, where um, Miranda Priestly tells off Andy for saying like oh, you know, that jumper was chosen from you, from the people in this room. It's like, oh, it's like, you yeah. know, that, that's not, you know, it's, it's Cerulean and that was fresh down on Oscar de la Renta, I think. And then it filtered down to whatever bargain basement you fished that lumpy sweater out of. <laughs> when I, you think it's kind of amusing that you think that this has something to do with you when in fact that sweater was chosen for the people in this room. <laughs> 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 it's, like, it's like every woman's favourite moment in cinema. Yeah, um, yeah. But those TK Maxx dresses that I wore for the first few years of my career between 2011 and 2014 was chosen for me by the people in this film. <laughs> and I, I was so... wondering,
2: I was like, is she really going to, that's where she's headed with this thing? <laughs> that it's Patricia Fields' fault that you ended up in offices In crepey scuba stretch.
1: Yeah, yeah. Lumpy jewel tones. Interesting. That's it. And when I watched it back, looking... Particularly because I was watching it with this podcasting lens, and I know that we talk about the fashion every week, I was like, okay, look for what you like. And then everything I saw triggered me to being, like, (laughs) 22 and working in a recruitment office with my own business cards and, like, being miserable and, like... (laughs) plucking out my eyebrow hair while I was on the phone to the point where one of my eyebrows is not just, not a twin, not a sister, but a distant cousin to my other eyebrow. (laughs) Um, And I just felt very shook by it. All like, yeah. I hate all the bridesmaids dresses. I hate it all.
2: Yeah, I think it's very persuasive and I do also remember that period. I was always Working in a TV office, it was always just really, really casual. But I remember all my mm-hmm. flatmates who worked in more corporate offices, they would find ways of getting those kind of s- slotty corporate, covers yeah. everything and yet reveals everything, stretchy dresses. And they would, it would like, the top end would be like Reese, but they wouldn't be able to afford it. So I remember my friend Belle would like scour the charity shops of Hampstead and Highgate. Yes, yeah. To find like...
1: Yeah, like a a deep raspberry structured deep raspberry, yeah. deep raspberries and teals and emeralds. I don't know why they're always that color, but I now run for the hills rather than wear those colors. Like, and yeah. now everything everything I wear is either black or really bright. Like it's a bright or scarlet or bright pink. Yeah, yeah, fluoro yellow. Yeah, I, I just anything is a jewel tone. I will just run. <laughs>
2: It's, and this, there is a lot of dual tone in this film. The one, the dress that I like that you had a very strong reaction to over messages <laughs> was the, the dress that um, Carrie wears to the baby shower she does for Charlotte, where she, it's got these mad long oh, sleeves yes. that yeah. trail on the floor, and it's little mini. But it is, it is in what Faro and Ball would call triggering teal. <laughs> Hates
1: it. Are there any outfits that you like in the film? I like her little thing she wears to bed with big. I like the sort of like the lilac camisole with the pearls over it. I find it very cute. Um, I I like enjoy the wedding shoot for the for the fun of it kind of thing. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, but I I um and I and I love her. I love the um, the the actual suit that she wears to her wedding in the end. That is kind of, you know, when I when I imagine myself getting married, sort of at a, at a, at a tastefully older age, it's it's kind of like what I imagine myself wearing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do I like anything else? I do like some of what Samantha wears. Um, but no. What about you? Anything else? I like the green. It's too Julie for you. Yeah. The
2: emerald green dress jacket and dress strapless dress that she wears to the apartment viewing with the studded belt. I think it's so elegant. Yes. When she sees that uh, penthouse apartment.
1: What is with the palette in this film?
2: I know. Why is it all, all of the time. I think that Naughty's was very Julie.
1: God, so funny to think of. Um... Oh, and a big shout out to Lily and her cupcake bag. Oh, I
2: love the glittery cupcake bag, which also serves as like a device for narrative because that's where she hides Carrie's mobile phone on the day of her wedding.
1: She does. She ruins Carrie's marriage. (laughs) With her little cupcake bag. (laughs) Lily's just so delicious, isn't she? She's so cute. Cute, that actress. I love her. I think while we're on the fashion we should wrap up by saying that this is the return of Enid Frick in this and when she says to Carrie um you know, she she's saying, oh we're doing we're doing stylish at any age and we'd like you to represent 40 and we want you to be a bride at kind 40 of, and she says it's the last age a woman can be a bride and it not be ridiculous and uh Carrie's like oh I don't know all me in this and Enid just says Carrie, this is Vogue. Vogue stylists, Vogue makeup artists, Vogue airbrushing. Save me the faux soul searching for a week and just say yes.
2: <laughs> I love that line as well. You said to me, and it's so true, that she inhabits that character so fully and so convincingly that when I watch those scenes, I think Enid Frick is a real character and somehow yeah. they manage to get like Grace
1: Coddington to do a cameo. It really feels that way, right? Yeah. And part of it, I think, is the slight woodenness to how Candice Bergen is, anyway. That's yes. how she performs things. And she kind of always has been the sort of ice queeny actress. But the way she's reciting her lines, particularly in that scene, which I think is the only scene where we see her, she seems like a non famous person. Yes. Yes. A non-actor who's had to um, say lines for a movie. Like they've gotten Anna Wintour or Grace Coddington to yeah, just say. Yeah, well,
2: like when they get Jenny Lyons onto girls, it feels yes. like you've just got this super famous style icon who just her haircut, and even the Enid haircut. Yes. You're just like, you just need to see the hair and you need to hear that voice and it will just imbue the film with this fashion pedigree because that's how famous Enid Frick is. Like I can't believe Enid Frick doesn't exist. <laughs> It's almost painful to me. It's hard.
1: It's hard to live with.
2: Yeah, it is hard to live with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I really hope that we haven't been too negative on this movie, but I don't also, I'm not going to fake a boner for this either, you know? No. And also, I think there are films
2: that are in your life that are just like comfy old armchairs in the corner. Yeah. And... When I watch this film, it's like, you know, that thing that psychologists and scientists say that, like, every time you have a memory, you're not having, you're not remembering the original event. You're remembering the last time you remembered it.
1: Yeah. I feel yeah.
2: that a bit about my watching of Sex in the City. <laughs> like, I've just got so many wonderful memories of, like, age 21, a boy breaking my heart, me being, you know, it was like the first big heartbreak that I'd ever had. Farley, I was living at home with my mum and dad in the suburbs. Farley just like moving into my room for two weeks and us watching that film over and over and over Mm. again or just being flatmates and slobbing out in bed watching it or watching it hungover on a Sunday. It's just like it's always going to be just like a comfy battered old thing that I'll never be able to not have in my life, this film.
1: I agree the only times I've ever watched it before was with these like um these three mates back in Cork who I, I, I really don't get to see very much anymore because obviously I live over here and all that but you know every, like, the only times I've seen it is with those three girls like just on on silly little holidays and stuff and it's just yeah yeah every time I watch it I'm just back I'm back in that little caravan watching it with them you know. Uh, and it's it's lovely, and I, well, I've also I've been thinking a lot about this as we come to the end of this podcast. Of now, you know, I'm I'm probably not going to watch Sex and City for quite a while after this. I know, I know. But the next time I watch it, all I'm going to think about is this, and isn't yeah. That nice?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said exactly the same thing recently.
1: Like it could literally, it could be another three or four years before I have the inclination to really go for it and watch all of this again. And, like, I could be in a completely different place in life and so could you, but we'll still be friends and we'll have all this stuff that we made together. And I think that's really yeah. nice. <laughs>
2: yeah. And it will mean a totally, it will be a different
1: show to us
2: because that's the thing with these shows that, like, you find, all these films you find in girlhood that are about womanhood, that yeah. they have different meaning with every decade of your life when you go back and watch them.
1: Yeah. And then we're going to have the bloody reboot to contend with.
2: Oh, God.
1: Which I already know we're going to watch once, kind of enjoy, and then forget about. Yeah. 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 Well, that's it for Sentimental in the City this week. Our final episode ever is going to be next week. And after that, we're going to be completely Kim Cattrall about the whole thing. And absolutely abandon any requests for further participation. (laughs) we're going to cut off our nose to spite our faces completely ignore what the fandom wants from us and just tacitly ignore (laughs) and then I'm going to start
2: leaving messages on (laughs) Caroline's Instagram posts and Caroline is going to reply saying you're not my friend you're never my friend now what was that thing she said on Piers Morgan's life story stories when he said oh will you be in the film and she says no thanks I'm good. <laughs> she says it in this fucking Aggy way.
1: I'm good. I oh, I have so much to say on that, but let's leave it for next week. <laughs> for anybody who wants to get in touch for the Q and A um, next week, we're gonna really try and spend as little time as we can on the second movie. We're going to point out some funny stuff, some cool stuff and then we're going to get on with the Q&A um, where you can ask us either questions about ourselves, about the show and you can get us on sentimentalpod at gmail.com. There are like something like 250 emails in there right now. so And they're so good! They're so great. There is some... It's a real range in there. I've cried at a couple of those emails so you really have to stand out. <laughs> and before... someone sends another email about it yes it is weird that brady's name is brady brady (laughs) got about 25 of those in there (laughs) okay bye everyone bye
0: mom deserves better than a drugstore card